Hey, Katie, what was yesterday? Yesterday was Thanksgiving. And did you eat a lot? I did. Did you? Oh my god, yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan. Today, we're going to be discussing the third section of Cloud Atlas entitled Half Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. So here on Interlibrary Loan, we take a book, we break it down into chapters or sections, and we discuss one per week. This is the third episode of Cloud Atlas, and we're going to take a moment to briefly catch up on what happened in last week's episode. Katie, I subjected you to this treatment last time, so Sky, it is your turn. All right. Last month, we followed the letters of one uh, Roger, uh, Robert Frobisher, a broke composer wannabe from London who escapes his debtors by going to Bruges and finds himself at Chateau Zettelgem, home of the famous composer Vivian Ayers and his family. There he convinces Ayers to hire him as his amanuensis and begins ingraining himself into the life at Chateau Zettelgem. Highlights include a pony named Nefertiti, dream music, and lots of sex and other adventures. Oh, also he found the diary, the, the Journal of Adam Ewing from the first section, and he read it and was very interested, but wishes that he had more of the journal, which he only found a fragment of. Yeah, so in fact, as it turns out, the section which cut out in the middle of a sentence for us is the experience that Robert Furbisher had. And since we're talking about form here, uh, what was the form of the last section? Uh, this was an uh, epistolary section in which he was writing letters to his school friend and lover, Robert... No. Rufus. Rufus. Robert Roger Rufus. There's no Roger. I just think there's a Roger. Um, <laughs> he's writing letters to his friend and lover, Rufus Sixsmith. So now we pick up with an entirely different narrative. Half-Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery. This is um, basically a cheesy like mystery novel. Like Even the way the section is introduced as like the first Louisa Ray mystery novel implies that you know, within the fictional world of Cloud Atlas, this is you know, going to be a series, which strongly implies that this section might even be fictional, whereas section one was supposed to be a diary, so therefore... You know, a first-hand account, and section two was was you know epistolary, so it was letters, which is also a kind of personal first-hand account. Even though the entire book is fictional, like this to me sets it up as if maybe the text that we're reading in the universe of Cloud Atlas is fictional. I don't know. What do you think about that, Katie? Yeah, I think it's absolutely a shift from the first two sections because, as you said, we're entering an entirely different kind of narrative here. We actually get, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this as we discuss the chapter, we actually get several different points of view, which we haven't gotten before. So we get kind of a more well-rounded idea of this particular story that's unfolding. So it's definitely a shift with within Cloud Atlas so far. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it as, because this isn't a first-person encounter, we actually get more information about the story itself. As compared to, you know, Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing, in which you had to kind of interpolate the time, the location, what he was doing, you know, or the letters from Zettelgem, where you had to like figure out who Sixsmith was. You only know his first name because it's mentioned, you know, once. And Katie, you're the only person who picked up on that. <laughs> and now it's like traditional third person omniscient narrative. So we actually get a good sense of everything for the first time. Yeah, it's 
a big shift in that we are not part of the characters' minds anymore. Let's let's get started with the characters because for once there's kind of a, a, a whole list of characters rather than just, you know, the main person and a few people they interact with. So the main person for this section is Louisa Ray. I mean, her name is in the title. And she's an investigative journalist. She's 26 and she's living in Buenos Aires, which is kind of a fictionalized San Francisco Los Angeles hybrid. One of the characters though, and in fact the first person you read in the novel is Rufus Sixsmith. Right. And this is so this is the first time in Cloud Atlas that we've had a character show up in two separate sections. Not just be mentioned in two separate sections, but actually physically take part in two separate sections. Exactly. And so we have Luisa, we have Rufus, we have Luisa's like 11 year old neighbor, Javier, who just like sneaks into her apartment from the balcony. There are some people who work at a nuclear power plant, Faye Lee and um, Joe Napier and Bill Smoke. So Faye Lee is like a media PR person. Joe Napier is, I guess, the head of security. And Bill Smoke is an unnamed shadowy figure who we kind of figure I mean, out is he's, an assassin. I mean, he's named. Like, we know his name is Bill Smoke. Sorry, unspecified shadowy figure. <laughs> yeah, he's like a fixer. I mean, he's 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 just the, the words best described for him are given in the text a hitman. <laughs> oh yeah, so there yes. we go. So the basic story here is that there's a nuclear power plant that's going to be built on an island called Swarnake Island, and it's like the third complex of you know, it's the third edition to this complex. They call it C, but it turns out that maybe the power plant is poorly designed and there's like a corporate conspiracy to get it built anyway and murder anybody who's getting in the way because profits come first. So, you know, we start with Rufus Dixmith and he's like leaving his apartment. And at the same time, Louisa is leaving a party and the two get locked in an elevator together as there's a brownout. Which a thing that I found interesting about that situation is they get on the elevator and then there's a brownout, they lose power and the elevator falls so, like, right off the bat in this chapter, we get a fall, which we've had a fall before in this book. So I don't know Ooh, if, if that's anything that. That, that was necessarily intended, but it certainly jumped out at me and I found it intriguing. No, I like that. Um, it also, stylistically, like, David Mitchell did a really good job writing a really tacky book for this yes. section. <laughs> yes. Like the, the second or third sentence is disco music booms from the next apartment where a party is in full swing. Uh, so that's clearly the party that Luisa was at. But I just, I like that because it's the kind of tacky, very cheap, like I'm going to set the time period without telling you what the time period is that a lot of, you know, dollar store mystery novels employ. Yeah, I mean, at one point, it, it's so specific that at one point we hear that Luisa Ray is reading in the newspaper that a, like ex-naval officer from Atlanta named James Carter is considering running for the Democratic nomination for president. So, I mean, it gets very specific, which is I like normally I would find this like corny and kind of cheap, but like he's playing to the conventions of the genre that he's writing in and he's doing it very well. Oh, absolutely. I, I as I was reading this, I was totally imagining it as some like over the top noir, like cheesy mystery movie which which is great yeah and so they meet each other in this elevator and in fact six smith does the thing where he holds the elevator for somebody and louisa says oh thank you glad the age of chivalry isn't totally dead 
because otherwise, you know, she would have had to wait for the next one. But then they immediately get caught in the brownout, and uh, Sixsmith says, are you still glad that the Age of Chivalry isn't dead? What I found interesting, though, about this is the way it, like, fits into the narrative structure and the kind of a genre structure of this section because they're caught in a brownout and then she mentions that the the one last month lasted for seven hours i mean the 70s and energy were already like that you know and jimmy carter like that's setting the background for a very historical event that did happen but this is a chapter about like a nuclear power plant so they're like the reason why they met the reason why they're stranded in this presages the need for additional power and therefore another power plant like it, it fits very neatly into this kind of genre construction of like, oh, everything is like, you know, going into the mystery plot. But it could, it. I feel like the tone could have been a lot sillier and more nostalgic. It's a, it's a grim and gritty 70s location in this pulp style, but it's not joyfully nostalgic the way that a lot of depictions in media, I'm thinking particularly in movies and television, can be ugly and, like, not ugly in a cool way, just, like, ugly in an ugly way. So when they're stuck in the elevator together, they're friendly and making conversation. And we learn through their conversation that her father, Lester Ray, was a dedicated and very, like, trustworthy journalist who gave a good like, perspective of what was happening in Vietnam, but kind of not from the American viewpoint. And so she tells the story of her her father. Basically, he was Serpico. Like, he was a cop who refused to be corrupt, so they sent him on all the super dangerous missions, and, you know, his partner got murdered, and, and he lost an eye. And in this situation where, like, everything goes down, he was cornered on a dock, and it says he dives over the edge and kind of swims his way to safety. And I found that interesting because of the way that this section ends. Oh, I didn't even think about that, but that's really cool. Because... Her father is a journalist. She became a journalist, but she's working at like a tacky gossip mag. And so she doesn't really get to do the kind of hard hitting investigative journalism that her father was famous for. In this chapter, though, she starts to do that. And in fact, because all of these stories end in media res, she <laughs> ends this section by being pushed off of a bridge into water. So there's like some parallelism between her and her father there. Another thing that I thought of hearing Louisa talk about her father, she wants to be like him. She wants... She says she wish she wishes she were the the reporter that that Lester Ray was. So she she wants his approval kind of in some way, which was sort of similar to another character that we've talked about previously on this show. Maybe not in the same way, but that Forbisher in the previous section. For, Forbisher. Uh, what, well, he he wanted he wanted to make his father wrong about casting him out, basically. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I that was an interesting which which later in in this section some things that Louisa thinks about make that an, another interesting thing to point out between these two characters so another thing that comes to light with this discussion between Louisa and Sixsmith is that we learn that Sixsmith is a scientist at this Seaboard Inc place and he's he, he he lets on to her that maybe things aren't all great with this reactor this hydro reactor so he's kind of planting the seed. Yeah. And I feel like as they're as they're talking, Six Smith quickly feels that he can trust her. And then indeed, by the time the elevator like at the, at the end of this section, 
the elevator starts up and it's it's like six smith wants to tell her more but alas the elevator starts and so the moment is kind of broken and then at the end he says i feel i've known you for years not 90 minutes also one other point we learn about him is that he has a a niece named megan who's like Mm -hmm. super intelligent she did a year of her phd at his old college at cambridge and then he says a woman at keys you know like imagine that and I found that kind of interesting given all of the play with gender in uh, the letters to Six Smith, where Frobisher was saying stuff like, you ought to try women at one point, or like, you ought to give them a try. There was all of that. Clearly, Six Smith is gay and Frobisher is kind of omnisexual. But I found it interesting that she went to the college where they met and then he kind of has this remark like, oh, imagine a woman at Keys. Uh, and now she's finishing her radio astronomy research at the Big Dishes on Hawaii. So, like, that's interesting. Um, is this a prequel to Contact? <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. We almost watched Contact. The, last the night. central section is just Contact in its entirety. We we come to understand Six Smith, uh, among other things, worked on the Manhattan Project as a Nobel laureate. He's very distinguished, um, and now he finds himself on the wrong end of a big corporation with hired assassins. Yeah, so basically, Louisa convinces her editor to let her try and do, like, this big, heavy-hitting investigation. And he's like, but we're a gossip mag, blah, 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 you know. And she's like, just let me do it. She starts doing her own thing. And she is a journalist, but this isn't really all the president's men style, which they do reference. But this is more, you know, like, noir investigative, like, pulp, really. So, if anything, the analog for her is more of, like, a private eye or the kind of gumshoe style. And so she goes to the, like, press day, effectively, and there's, you know, a big, like, launch speech at Swarnake Island, and, you know, the U.S. Secretary of Energy is there, and she tries to sneak out and find where Six Smith's office is, and when she gets there, like, she's told one, oh, yeah, he's on, he's on vacation in Vegas, so, like, obviously that's weird and suspicious, and then she actually gets to his office and sees that, like, st- the, like his name was kind of rubbed off of the door. And when she's there, she meets an engineer named Isaac Sachs. She basically pretends to be Megan, the niece. And then Fei Li, the media contact, like finds her and is like, oh, what are you doing here, Louisa? So blowing her cover with, you know, Isaac. But then also, like, she's starting to be seen as suspicious. So there is an interesting conversation here between Isaac and Louisa where he asks what she drives and she's like, oh, I drive a Beetle. And he's like, oh, what's the name of your car? Every Beetle owner names their car. So she tells him Garcia. Like, it was cute, though, because the examples he provided were like, you know, John or Ringo or Paul or George. Like, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we could go in depth at this, but it's super just kind of stereotypical. Well, so importantly, Six Smith is trying to, like, flee back to England and gets murdered by, in a hotel room, by uh, Bill Smoke. Who has a but, ridiculous pulp hitman name that is an absurd name? Yeah, it really is. Uh, I think I think Bill Smoke is kind of like the most pulp element of the whole thing. Like he's so over the top and ridiculous. Like shortly before Six Smith is shot, he we see him rereading the letters and specifically the nine letters. And I went back and counted. There were nine in that section we just read. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So he rereads the first nine letters from Frobisher that we just read in the last section. And then he puts them into uh, the Bible at uh, the, the Gideon's Bible that's at the hotel. And then he gets moitered. 
And so uh, when Louisa comes looking for him, she pretends to be his niece, Megan, and they give her these letters. And that's how she comes into contact with the previous story. Um, what I do find interesting, though, about this section, one, I mean, one thing I want to mention is he tries to buy a same-day ticket, and he can't. And so he settles for the next day thinking he'll be safe at the hotel airport. And what he does is it says he has a locker. He puts something into the locker and then he mails the key to Louisa Ray. So even though they've only spoken once in the elevator, like he trusts her like very, very significantly. And then one of the reasons that's cited by the air clerk for not being able to book a same day ticket is that there is an air traffic control strike. And so it says Sixsmith sells himself that not even Seaboard could arrange aviation strikes to detain him. Um, so I found that interesting just because there's a, a notice later on about strikes. And going to the stereotypical portrayal of Bill Smoke, the assassin, it says that he strokes a lucky Krugerrand in his pocket. Uh, Krugerrand is a golden coin that's minted by the government of South Africa and is one of the like international standards for like gold as um, like monetary unit. Uh, so he's like the like gold stroking assassin who takes like f- almost sexual pleasure from firing people. That is something that people do though. They Not like firing people, murdering people. Uh, like it's a thing that people have done for a long time is use these uh, Krugerrand coins as like jewelry or like lucky charms or whatever. Um, I think it's like a, it's like a pulp character building moment where they just, they just give the guy a weird thing to do. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the guy leaning against the wall, like flipping the coin, catching it, flipping it, catching it. Yeah. It is so wonderfully over the top though, because the line after it's done, after the body slumps back, uh, it says fulfillment throbs in Bill Smoke's brain look what i did so this character is so clearly like yeah he he's 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 the quintessential weird odd hitman who like gets off on what he does so as louisa leaves the hotel with the letters it says she it it, it does another one of these like tacky third person omniscient things where it says little did she know that she was passing within 10 yards of locker number 909 yeah, you know, silly little foreshadowing. Um, I do wonder if nine oh nine is an important number, since I thought two thirty seven last week might have been, but I don't know. It's not the hotel Was room it? from The Shining. No, it's not. But then the next day, it says she goes to her office and she's talking to her editor, and her editor is like mad that she's not working on a story that she can print right now. And then it says that there's going to be a that there's like possibly a delivery strike upcoming so they can't delay anything it's like that's what i found interesting is like two mentions of strikes both delaying really important action by the main characters i don't know if that's significant but like like within the great i don't know if that's significant within the greater construct of cloud alice itself but i am starting to see at least with this emerged like the idea of like an institution versus an individual so you have in this chapter both the like seaboard power versus kind of the fledgling activists. You also have then the the, the strikes, which are probably you know organized by unions versus, that are interfering with the actions of individuals. And so in this case, like the unions and the strikes are not directed towards the individuals, but it's still like an individual kind of suffering or fighting against an institution. 
So then Louisa is reading the letters clearly because what does she do? Oh, she calls up a rare music store and asks if they have a copy of the Cloud Atlas Sextet by Robert Frobisher, which uh, they are able to special order for her. Um, and then they give her a piece of information that we haven't got yet as the audience. Um, a little background on Frobisher. It says, Frobisher was a wunderkind. He died just as he got going. So there's an implied early death here for Frobisher, which we actually had not yet encountered in reading this book. Which is a damn shame because Frobisher is a very entertaining character. Yeah. Well, it also says right. when Louisa was reading the letters, it says they disturb her. I mean, Frobisher's pretty disturbing too, I guess. I don't, I mean, I'm not really sure. I wasn't really sure what that was supposed to refer to. Well, they disturb her, but then later in this, uh, so she's reading the, well, it's actually just as we're talking about this. Yeah. So the letters disturb her and it's because as she's reading these letters, she sees these images and it's images so vivid she can only call them memories. Yeah. And so, and then as we saw in the letters, Frobisher had talked about this comet shaped birthmark that he had. And so then she's saying to herself, I just, I just don't believe in this crap. I just don't believe it. I don't. So this is another, like we had six Smith told her, I feel like I've known you for years instead of 90 seconds when they were in the elevator. And now she's, reading these letters from Frobisher and feeling some kind of strange connection to this to this person and then we have this mention mention of the the birthmark that we've seen a couple times before so it's this is the the most overtly i feel uh allusion to the idea of like reincarnation of these characters yeah or at least like an actual spiritual connection between them Right. Yeah, I was I was just trying to like do the mental math and figure out if like literal reincarnate reincarnation was possible for some of these characters. And well, I mean, she's twenty six. It's stated that she's twenty six. This takes place in nineteen seventy five, so she would have been born in what forty nine. Right, which would mm -hmm. put I mean, and we don't know when Frobisher died. No, but if he died just as he was taking off, it's unlikely that it would happen like twenty, almost twenty years after the events of the. F they yeah. They also mentioned that the recording is pre-war, right? Right. Uh, and then, but actually, the first part to the second part would make sense because if, uh, well, it would make sense if Adam Ewing lived to like a ripe old age and died at the age of like eighty around the turn of the century. We'd have Frobisher as his like reincarnation. She special orders the recording. She doesn't have it yet, but it'll, it'll come. And she keeps going on her, you know, about her business, kind of talking with her 11-year-old nephew, or not nephew, neighbor. He's like this weird presence in her life. Um, she goes to a protest camp and meets an activist named Heather Van Zant. And turns out that Van Zant and Sixsmith knew each other. She's Van Zant is the one who told us that he's a Nobel laureate, that he worked on the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. And... She also mentions that there's someone named Margot Roker who owns a lot of the land nearby and the power company has been trying to like strong arm her into selling. And mysteriously, she was mugged at, or there's like a home invasion six weeks ago that looked like a, you know, looked like a burglary, but they beat her senseless and she's in a coma. So, you know, more implication that they're using really like strong arm techniques to get rid of their foes. I mean, this is not like a conspiracy theory coming from 
like Louisa and the other characters, there's a section where, where we get like the in, internal monologue of uh, Grimaldi, the CEO, who is like this sociopathic mastermind who is like obsessed with Nietzsche and uh, and like mega evil. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's not just like all these characters have suspicions. We, the reader, have confirmation that this is this, like, crazy man who is trying to, like, Machiavelli-style mastermind everything. She's invited to come back to Swarnaki Island for a more official interview. And officially, the interview was set up with Isaac Sack, the researcher she ran into in Sixsmith's office earlier. When she gets there, however... They say, oh, he just left. He was called away. You know, basically we had a, a meeting and the you know, person who was supposed to go couldn't make it. So we sent him instead. Uh, so what I found interesting is they say he flew out to our Three Mile Island site, which, of course, Three Mile Island is the most famous nuclear disaster in American history. Happened in 1979. So just after this book is set. I've been to Three Mile Island. It's um, disturbing. It's still a functional nuclear power plant, but the like cooling tower where everything went down is just like this husk. So like two out of the three things are still going, and one of them is just like a- an empty shell. It's wow. it's a very eerie, and it's like it's it's literally an island on on the middle of the river. It's a very very eerie place. So, Louisa ends up having dinner with Faye at Swarnaki Island, and we get a little more information that the island sounds almost like a private community. Like, it's not a small island because there's, like, a golf course and, like, a nice restaurant, and but people live on it. It's not just, you know, we put this power plant on this island. I got the impression that everyone who lived on the island was part of this corporation. Yeah, so it's, like, a private community. Yeah, involved in the thing. And it it also says you reach it by a mile-long bridge. It's a really long bridge, but whatever. I mean... Yeah, that's not, like... Thing that's I mean, real. the Bonacary Spillway in New Orleans is 26 miles long, so it's not that uncommon. It's not it's not like a suspension bridge. It's like a, you know, like a pile. Bridge. Yeah, I guess that's so. Um, so wait a minute, though. What is this island called? I was reading this as Swan Neck Island or like Swan Neck Island. Uh, oh, in the movie, they say Swanicky. That's why I've been saying it that way. Swan-a-key. Oh, really? Okay. okay. Well, it looks like Swan Neck which I think is a like a good mental image of what this island might look like. <laughs> also, one thing I find interesting is during their dinner, Louisa says to Faye, I'm, I'm the slob of the class, and then complimenting Faye for being nice because they're eating lobster, so, you know, messy food. She says, you should open a finishing school for young ladies in Switzerland. So just having read uh, the letters from Zettelgem, I wonder if this is a reference to Eva because didn't she go off on like a multi-month trip to a school in switzerland and frobisher was glad to have her out of the house oh yeah, yeah i didn't think about that yeah she did so i don't think this is like a psychic connection between them i think she's just like you know using a recent influence but i, I liked that point i think it's another yeah it's another subtle connection between the two characters i like it especially because within the context of this mystery novel the reader itself does not have access to the novel the the reader themselves do not have access to the letters because they're not included, you know, as a section within the mystery novel, like they're included in a section within Cloud Atlas. Right. Well, you're assuming that all of these sections 
exist in some way outside of their existence in Cloud Atlas. They're, I mean, it's constructed to seem like a real text. I know, but the more I read it, the more I kind of feel like, are these supposed to represent works outside of the context of Cloud Atlas, or can they only be understood as like parts of Cloud Atlas? Well, we'll have to discuss that at the end of our reading, I suppose. Because this is my this is my pet one. theory that like he's he's going to build layer upon layer, and ultimately those layers will break down and they will become like unreadable as things outside of Cloud Atlas. And they can only exist within the greater story. Exactly. That's my that's my pet theory. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah. So then she gets woken up by a phone call. So I guess she was staying in like a hotel on Swanakee Island. Is that the case? Did you get a, a feel for this? Yes. Yeah, she was staying in a hotel. Okay. Um, and the phone call is from Isaac Sachs, the, you know, the second researcher that she's been in touch with and he's like oh it's me isaac calling long distance you know i'm in philadelphia i was dragged away uh are are you still in california and she's like yeah and he says before i left swanakee i gave garcia a present to give to you just a dolce farniente and it says he tries to make this sound casual and she doesn't understand it at first but he's clearly speaking in code yeah, and then she remembers that he asked her what the name of her car was. And in the conversation with him about her crappy beetle, uh, she mentioned that the, the lock on the trunk is unreliable. So she realizes, oh, he probably put the, you know, the report, the damning report by Sixsmith into the trunk of my car. Um, is dolce fardiente Italian for sweet fart? No, fare means to do. So it's like a, su- like a sweetness for nothing is... What I think, I mean, it might be uh, colloquialism. Yeah. That, but it, it's like a nice gesture for no reason, I guess. Is the Cool. You learn something new every day. But so, yeah, uh, Louisa now has to try to play it cool because she's basically being watched. And in fact, we then cut to, uh, who is it, Joe? Yeah, who's Joe Napier. Listening. Yeah, Joe Napier is listening in and, and he doesn't know what Sachs is talking about, but... but seems to think it's important and nobody can find nobody knows what garcia means yeah, he's like but, who's garcia and what's a dolce farniente yeah but and, so luisa then has another she she starts like throwing things in into a bag to get ready to go and she has another kind of flashback to frobisher because she's like okay i gotta get out of here i have to run uh, they're going to be on my tail soon. And yeah, she says she stuffs her belongings into her overnight bag. Robert Frobisher doing a dine and dash from another hotel. Then what should happen? But as she's driving down this mile long bridge, Bill Smoke follows her car and rams it and pushes her over the bridge into the water, just like her father. Dun, dun, dun. This doesn't make much sense to me, though, because why would they try to kill Luisa before they identify and control for Garcia? Right. They don't know who Garcia is. And uh, Sachs says that he left something with Garcia. So if they kill Luisa before she gets in contact with Garcia, they lose the lead. And now Garcia still has this report that they're trying to cover up well but it says that bill smoke goes to the guard and says june apier told you not to let the v-dub pass right 
And the guard says yes. And then Smoke is like, I'm speaking on his authority and you can't let it pass. So maybe he's like going kind of rogue agent here because he likes murdering people. Oh, that's true. But then he's like, oh, this murder wasn't even any good because I didn't get to like kill her with my bare hands or some shit. It says, it says, Bill Smoke inspects the damage to his car's bodywork and feels deflation. Anonymous, <laughs> faceless homicides, he decides, lack the thrill of human contact. What that line reminded me of actually is it reminded me of Frobisher talking about all of his sexual exploits because he, he talks about them all in a very mechanical, detached way. Like he's basically Frobisher pathologically sleeps with people mm-hmm. and smoke pathologically kills people. So I'm not saying that there's a connection. I don't know if either of them are pathological, like pathological suggests that they're like, it's like a, it's like a compulsion. I feel like both Bill smoke and Frobisher are just sort of getting their kicks. I, I suppose, but I mean... They're like opportunistic more than um, like compulsive in this sense. What I mean by pathological in this case is that it's something that they're compelled to do and they found a way to incorporate that within like a career track, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Smoke is clearly like a sociopath and found a good career for that. And uh, not that Forebster's career is having sex, but clearly he uses sex as a tool for personal advancement Mm -hmm. so right you know you could go out and have sex with anybody but he like very carefully and specifically does it at certain points um so like the way that they incorporate that in their lives and then of course because we love to end things with cliffhangers this is where it ends and then we see the next page is called the ghastly ordeal of timothy cavendish um which does not sound like it is a jump forward in time i mean based solely on the title yeah i'm assuming that it is because i think that this book goes one direction in time so there were a couple things that I wanted to discuss because I'm starting to see some themes emerge. Oh, are we uh, going to wait real quick? Are we going to discuss the comet shaped mole? I mean, that's one of them. Oh, okay. So if you want to yeah. get started, let's go ahead and start up talking about the comet shaped birthmark mole. I guess it's a birthmark. It's a birthmark. Yeah. Why a comet? Is it, like, do you think just because that's a fairly benign image to appear like, you know, a lot of things can be described as comet shaped. So a comet has an orbital period right that comes ar- back around every however oh so many interesting years. Mm-hmm. but the time gap so far is not consistent yeah that that is not consistent so perhaps it's on a strange lobe axis or something i don't know but i think it just plays into a, a like general astronomical celestial motif we've got the I mean, even like banal things like Megan being an astrophysicist and uh, but then also all of the clouds and the sky, the bird of prey, even the Tottenvogel. And do you remember in the first section they discuss, I don't remember the specific thing it was like the idea of, you know, moral to these people or something is like is as strange a concept as the telescope is to the pygmy. Mm hmm. That's like a specific line I pointed out. Yeah, because it made no sense. So now we're seeing more of this emerge, like a comet. Well, you use a telescope to view a comet. Also, hey, there's an astrophysicist here, like going to an observatory. And one thing about viewing the stars is that you can't do it when there are clouds in the way. You know, like some of these things are very just like trite banal observations of like, oh, hey, look, this could be a symbol. And, you know, but 
obviously there's a greater network to what this is supposed to mean. As as it turns out, a cloud atlas is also a real thing. I I thought it was you know like a map of the sky, you know, map of the clouds that are changing. It actually refers to a like compendium of cloud types, so like cumulonimbus, blah blah blah. Like it's a meteorological tool. But if you do deconstruct it and look at the more literal meaning that we were interpreting you know over the past two weeks of like a map of the clouds like if you had a map of the clouds or if you had like foreknowledge of the movement and change and position of the clouds then that would assist you from an astronomical perspective so not that this is a direct like oh my god clouds get in the way of your telescope but rather like the changing notion of reality and interpersonal relationships can obscure your ability to see like what's beyond that? Am I am I talking nonsense here or? Um, no, it makes sense. Uh, but also, I mean, all of these astronomical and meteorological references are interesting. But so far, they sort of it sort of sounds like you know that episode of Futurama that's like the Da Vinci Code, and they just yeah. like bullshit stupid Renaissance things, and yeah. they're like, "This is called the Trevi Fountain, and Trey means three, so we're looking for three. There are three points on this trident." It must point Numerology. Away. Yeah, it, it really does sound like... But, like, it, there's definitely a possibility for this to add up to something more than that. Like, it's it's clearly, like, like building groundwork for something. Another thing I want to talk about is, like, the idea of islands. Because we're starting to see a repeated connection to islands as well. First section, mm-hmm. Pacific Journal, Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing, starts in the Chatham Islands. Uh, he was in Australia, which is a big island or a small continent. Um then Six Smith is British, which is an island. He goes to the mainland and kind of hates the continent. But even when he's walking around Zettelgem, he mentions a decorative island, like built in a pond on their property. And that's right in the section where he has his fall, because, you know, we're discussing all of these falls. And then the nuclear power plant that serves as the MacGuffin for this section is on a self-contained island that's like its own community, like divorced from the rest of Buenos Aires, this fictional, you know, San Francisco-like city. So more kind of, I don't know what to make of it yet, but it's something that I'm seeing recurring through all the, you know, all the texts. And I feel like as we keep going on, these threads, like you said, you know, are are we making stupid? Yeah. Or are the threads coming together? So it's not really that like, oh, I have an idea to the theme. It's rather like, I think this is something we should be, looking for and reading for as we continue because this is my second time reading the book so i'm like seeing these things for the first time you know like these connections materialize and so i'm not trying to like spoil things for you but i am trying to like direct your reading just slightly you know um are we gonna talk about gender i think that's an important thing to talk about for this section i mean this is our first female protagonist and really it's the first not a lot of women in the first two sections at yeah, all. Yeah, the only women were Yocasta and Eva. And Eva. And Eva was not portrayed in a good light. And Yocasta was mostly just kind of being used by. by yeah. And then Richard. all of a sudden, we've got a section that really passes the Bechdel test. She's also the first protagonist who's a minority because she's, I mean, both female and Latina. And. If you remember in the Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing, like you see a lot of racism going on, both kind of active, you know, like white people are better than everyone else because we were able to colonize the world and we have a Christian God, which is coming from some people. And then Ewing is like, well, 
we're not better than them. It's our job to help them join our level. I guess that's kind of a we're better than them, but it's not, you know, like we should destroy them because they're worse. It's like we should lift them up. So both of those are like racist from a modern perspective, although Ewing himself was very like well-intentioned or viewed himself as being well-intentioned. And then in Letters from Zettelgem, Frobisher, you know, is anti-Semitic at certain points. And when he gets to the mainland, he is disgusted at the Aboriginal Belgians, as he calls them. And then even in this section, uh, some of the characters uh, like tell some pretty racist jokes. Uh, talking about like Richard Pryor and you know some of this is just like oh this guy is popular in the 70s but others like it's just it's representing this you know this form of racism and so what I'm seeing here emerge as well is kind of a representation of I guess it's another representation of like a power structure so I'm, I'm seeing a lot of power structures appear in this novel so like one is like, the dominant class versus the uh, you know, the oppressed class. One is, like I said, an individual versus a, like an authority. Frobisher had his debt collectors, like they're kind of constricting his ability as an individual. And, 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 you know, Louisa and Six Smith in this section are fighting against this like massive corporation. And then another institution like the labor unions, not like, personally, target them but like you know affect them in a way that they are not able to control for maybe i am trying to see too much in this but i i don't know I, i'm just starting to see a lot of tiny little threads emerge. this section is it's not even it's called the first louisa ray mystery but there's not much of a mystery like we the reader know what happened basically and what is happening the characters don't, but we do. That's true. It's it, more it, of a thriller, right? It's more of a noir kind of story than a than an actual mystery, like whodunit type story. It's interesting that our gumshoe, our private dick, is Louisa Ray, um, who is the who is a woman who is entering this very male dominated newsroom type setting, and all of her fellow journalists at this magazine are total monsters to her constantly and uh it was just a very different kind of conversation than i think we've seen in the previous sections and it was sort of like it's again it's the kind of thing that is it's like the ugly 70s but not the nostalgic cool ugly 70s the like real ugly 70s and I think that's really been a mark of uh, David Mitchell has a real knack for this, not only in the uh, staying true to different genres, but staying true to different time periods that he's writing in. Yeah, absolutely. This this felt like, I don't know, it, it was like going back in time. I mean, I was not alive in the 70s, but as pulpy as it was, it was like, oh, man this is a world that's so alien from our own and also so familiar, right? Like so much of this has not changed. It's just taken like different forms. Yeah. So, I mean, that is kind of one of the benefits also of having this like staggered into these different periods is you get to revisit ideas or relationships and view them kind of through these different, you know, time periods. So it's almost like in some ways the same struggles are happening and the change in time is changing the way that the characters are able to respond to it you know so like mm -hmm. everybody has faced somebody who didn't believe in them so far and the time period is then like changing and affecting the way that they come out of this situation but i think we've uh, covered everything 
for now. So shall we go ahead and start to wrap things up and get to our favorite things? Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I'll, I will start us off because I've got it open in front of me right now. My favorite thing from the text is a line that happens very early, and it's actually a conversation between Louisa and Sixsmith in the elevator. It's not small talk, but it's not like, oh my God, you should check out this reactor. You know, it's not. It's not that bit. And so they're talking about Hitchcock, and at one point they're directly talking about the way thrillers are constructed. Which, since you know, we said this is not really as much of a mystery as it is a thriller. Like I found that kind of interesting. But then there's this fun exchange between them where Sixsmith says. Hitchcock's Buenos Aires remark puts me in mind of John F. Kennedy's observation about New York. Do you know? Do you know it? Most cities are nouns, but New York is a verb. And then he asks Louisa, you know, what would Buenos Aires be? And uh, she says a string of adjectives and conjunctions. And his reply was, or an expletive. I don't. <laughs> I, I really like that. It was a fun, kind of cheesy, but a nice way to set the, the the scene give us an idea of what the city is because that really does feel like the kind of conversation that you would have with somebody when you're getting to that deeper like a little intellectual mode where it's like oh you know what is blah 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 so i don't know it, it felt like a very true character moment to me and i also just liked it from a writing perspective at the same time it's very stylized like this is the kind of way that people talk in noir yeah oh and, yeah and actually fairly rarely talk in real life my, I just feel like Sixsmith, as the kind of like dapper, educated British man, maybe would make that remark, like when he's meeting somebody and being a little formal and being a little intellectual, because they're able to connect on this more than just casual level, you know? Oh yeah. Well, I I selected as my quote of the week um, something from the same passage, um, where Louisa is talking about her interview with Hitchcock that she had done, I guess, like a couple years previously, and. Uh, she says this about interviewing Alfred Hitchcock. He spoke in Bon Mots like that, not to you, but into the ear of posterity for dinner party guests of the future to say, that's one of Hitchcock's, you know. I found this interesting because she's saying this to Sixsmith, who has had to deal with Frobisher's like talking like that for. You know, and yeah, six Smith's six Smith knows how to respond. So mine was there are actually two corresponding parts from this section that I picked out that remind me of something from a previous section, which is a thing that I'm really liking that's coming uh, to be a theme, a running theme in this book. So it's Sachs and Louisa are talking. And uh, Sachs is talking about why he became a scientist. He said, I became a scientist because it's like panning for gold in a muddy torrent. Truth is the gold. And so Louisa responds, journalists work in torrents just as muddy. So they're talking about looking for truth, obviously. And then a little later on, Louisa is thinking about her father. Was this when she's considering lying? Yeah. Yeah, she's, considering she's lying. wondering if it's ethical or okay to like tell a lie to right. uncover the truth. Right. And... Yeah. So Lu- Louisa, it says Louisa wonders what level of deceit is permissible in journalism. She remembers her father's answer one afternoon in the hospital garden. Did I ever lie to get my story? Ten mile high whoppers every day before breakfast if it got me one inch closer to the truth. So obviously, looking for the truth and in, in the idea of a journalistic sense, but. Uh, but then we had Sachs talking about looking 
for the truth in a, in a scientific sense. And this makes me think back to Adam Ewing. Um, and because he had had a line about truth, capital T, truth. As many truths as men, occasionally I glimpse a truer truth, capital T, truth, hiding in imperfect simulacrums of itself. But as I approach it, it bestirs itself and moves deeper into the thorny swamp of dissent. So, um, I don't know. I'm liking this idea of truth seekers, uh, of parallel truth seekers that we're encountering. And actually, come to think of it, the the imagery of like searching for gold kind of like picking out the little bits of it reminds me of the very first entry in Adam's diary, which is he stumbles on looking for teeth. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Goose looking for teeth kind of by the spoonful and the sands on that beach. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well guys, what is a vanilla binder? Like a manila folder? Right, that's what I'm thinking. Is it does does David Mitchell just not know the difference between a manila folder and a vanilla binder? I, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, because that, that's just immediately the image that popped into my head was one of those folders that you ship something in. Well, maybe this is a weird <laughs> '70s reference that we're all too young to understand. Maybe. Well, Anyone who lived during the '70s, tell us if manila binder is a thing that we yeah. should know. Hey, old people who listen to our show, tell us what a vanilla <laughs> binder is. So this is actually a good way for me to segue into what's my non-text-related favorite thing of the week. Um, although quickly, a fun fact, uh, manila folders are called that because they're made out of a paper that was referred to as manila. Uh, the paper itself was made from a like a fiber that came originally from the Philippines. So that's why they're called manila. Anyway, uh, my favorite moment is... Last week was Thanksgiving, last Thursday, one week ago today, and I had everybody over to my place. By everybody, I mean a few people who didn't have other places to go, and Sky joined me, and we had a very fun time, and vanilla, this is the segue, is that um, I was a little drunk by this point. I was making whipped cream for our pies, and uh, I grabbed what I thought was vanilla, and it said it was mint extract, and I didn't realize until after I had made the whipped cream. So I was like, here you go. Oh, no. go. Yeah, so we had some uh, mint whipped cream on pumpkin pie, which is an unusual melange. You were mixing two entirely different flavor profiles there. <laughs> yeah. The, the mint whipped cream was pretty good on that chocolate pie that you made, it went, Yeah, it went with the chocolate pie, just not with the... With a pumpkin. But yeah, I had a really fun time. So that was my favorite thing. It's just, you know, getting together with people. And what I really like about Thanksgiving, I never go home for it. I actually make a point to stay in New York, is there are a lot of people who don't go home for Thanksgiving. And there are, you know, places to be. There are other Friendsgivings. Mine's not the only one, obviously. There are events you can do. You could. You mean you didn't invent Friendsgiving? <laughs> no, but it's a fun thing. And I like that I have this opportunity to... You know, like bring together my friends and that we can still like celebrate something that's a tradition, but in in the process, like create new memories. And, you know, like for me, not being at home for Thanksgiving is more special than being at home for Thanksgiving because of the things that I get to do and the ways I get to spend it with people. You know, I've done 22, 23 Thanksgivings with my family. Like what's another one when I can be doing something entirely new instead? Um, thank you so much for having me over for Thanksgiving, John. It was uh, it was a great time. I was not fishing for compliments, but thank you anyway. You have a lovely home <laughs> and such a great sense of decor. Um, my, let's see my barren white walls. It's it's very industrial chic. I've been watching various David Attenborough documentaries, 
on Netflix. They're wonderful, and I love seeing animals. I think what's so interesting about David Attenborough and the BBC documentaries he's done over the years and why they are so much better than other nature documentaries is that he instills a really specific amount of narrative into the documentary footage. Um, it's not particularly scientific, but it's it's it makes the footage extremely compelling without going overboard it you you feel like you're still watching something that is from nature it hasn't been overly anthropomorphized but it definitely has been i mean uh that's that's part of the appeal uh there's tons and tons of recent david attenborough documentaries on netflix so um there's always another one to watch uh my favorite thing of the week is a very, very silly one as, I mean, that's that's not all that unusual for me. I've had a lot of silly favorite things of the week, but mine actually came earlier today and it was a link that John tweeted at me about a rescue goat <laughs> that only calms down when she's in her ducky costume. Oh, I saw that. That picture is adorable. And... That, I mean, there's nothing more to say. That was my favorite thing of the week. You should all look and just feel the joy of the rescue goat in her ducky costume. What do you rescue a goat from? I, I know that's from, like kind of a bummer question. From, from, from a bad life on the streets. I guess, yeah. They, they joined the, the goats and girls clubs. Oh, and didn't have a, they didn't have enough garbage to eat. Because we all know yeah. goats will eat anything. Anyway, look up this goat in a ducky costume because it's amazing. My question is why, like, who was the person who's like, oh, I'm going to get a duck costume for my goat? Like, how does... Why it, wouldn't you? Is that like a duck costume for a dog or something? Like, It's probably Perhaps. a duck costume for a person. It was, Goats yeah, and... it was probably a child's ducky costume. You can put a hoodie on a goat. It looked like a hoodie that was, like, made up to look like a duck. Yeah. <laughs> but regardless, it was ridiculously cute. Oh my god, speaking of animal hoodies, there's a joke in the third season of Broad City where Alana keeps accidentally wearing dog hoodies thinking that they're just yes. crop tops. <laughs> and the only way she realizes is because there's a hole cut out at the back of the hood for the, the leash to go to. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> oh, it's such a good show. If you haven't watched Broad City, you need to rectify that. So yeah, join us next week for the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. And we will not be as uh, food comatose as we are this time. So thank you again for listening and thank you for supporting us. I'm going to do another call out. uh, If you're, you know, if you're still with us, if you're new or if you came over from Talking Tolkien, you know, we really appreciate you being with us and we would really appreciate if you would leave us, uh, you know, a review in the iTunes store that really, really helps us gain prominence and, you know, appear in search results. And especially in the critical early period of like just having launched this podcast since we're less than a month old, really, they're more important now than ever. So, you know, we'd really appreciate it if you give us a review. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. Thank you for listening to Interlibrary Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club.
We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at ILL Bookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better-sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far.